Hi, and welcome to episode 23 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger, and my guest today is Michael Sims. Michael and I crossed paths when I was doing a class at Julian Ashton Art School in Sydney, and he was had been awarded a scholarship at the school and was um, there quite a lot that year. But it wasn't until I met up with him last week that I discovered that um, getting to that point was not as easy as it seemed. I've looked out for Michael's work since then and I'm not surprised that in just last year alone he was recognised with three art awards and was finalist in seven others. He's had two solo shows in the last 12 months and as I'm recording this he's in a group show at Flinders Lane Gallery in Melbourne. That show is called Exploration 17 and features 11 of Australia's top emerging artists. Details of that show and images of all the works we talk about are on the website talkingwithpainters.com. I started by asking Michael where he was born and what memories he had of art as a child. I was born um, in Adelaide and I grew up in a suburb called Flagstaff Hill, which was about an hour out of the city. And uh, my parents had just recently moved back from the UK because um, my dad's from Leeds and mum's from Broken Hill, but they'd been living there and moved back. And I drew a lot, as most kids do. And I think uh, I just had a more introverted personality, which sometimes means that you're more likely to spend time on your own drawing. Do you remember what you would draw? Um, I, was, I loved movies. I've always loved films. And I guess I, I grew up in that uh, era of the golden age of Disney where they were a big deal. So I would copy a lot of things from Disney books and oh, yeah. cartoon characters and things like that. And my brother and I used to spend a lot of time uh, drawing together as well. And we'd sort of create these uh, magazines and comic books. We'd sort of entertain ourselves a lot through doing mm. stuff like that. And we were quite imaginative and and I remember he did a character inspired by Prince Charles and I did a character inspired by Camilla <laughs> a separate comic books and it would be like their misadventures where they would sort of find themselves in these embarrassing situations so you made up this, the narrative as well yeah and I think because there was you know a huge scandal in the the yeah. 90s with those two and our parents kind of vaguely resembled Charles and Camilla <laughs> There was a bit of a fascination with the two of them. So, yeah, as kids, we would sort of do these strange comics. Um, yeah, and we'd often get these books. Um, my dad would take them into work and get them bound. And I remember when he'd take them back home, we'd be, like, blown away. They looked like, you know, an actual book, and we felt like it had actually been published. But when I actually worked in an office, I realised that it's not a big deal to get anything bound. <laughs> But as a kid, it, it felt pretty amazing. Did you do art at high school? Yeah, so I, um, I had a really good teacher called Mr Little and um, he had a really bad speech impediment and it was a lot of the other students would sort of mock him and impersonate him behind his back, but I used to have a speech impediment when I was a kid. So I felt this great sort of sympathy with him you know, right from the start. So I actually, I don't know, I always warmed to him, even though yeah. other students would weren't so kind. But it, um, with that teacher, we had to do self-portraits as an um, assessment in year 10. And I remember having the worst cystic acne at that 
time of my life. It's like horrendous, big, horrible cysts. Yeah. And uh, the last thing I wanted to do was look at myself in the mirror. Mm. And, uh, and I thought, oh, I, yeah, I was really stressed out about doing it. And I, I actually spoke to the teacher about it because I didn't want to do a self-portrait. Um, and he said, well, why don't you just think of it as, you know, this is going to pass in a couple of years and just paint yourself as you'd imagine you'll look like without, without this acne. So I ended up doing that and it was quite a large, they were quite large self-portraits and they were all hanging in the art room for other classes to come and see, uh, other students to come and see. And I remember someone at the bus stop uh, who was a couple of years below me um, was giving me a hard time about not painting my acne oh. <laughs> and was saying, oh, it looks like you've got melanoma on your face. Why didn't you paint that in? Oh. Really awful stuff. And I was, I was really horrified by that. But then my brother t said when I got home and told him about it, he said, oh, well, at least they recognised who it was. So <laughs> sort of I thought, oh, they were able to tell who it was. So it kind of, yeah, it did um, inspire me to, to keep going with that. When you finished high school, did you have a view of pursuing art at that point? No, I'd, um, I guess I'd never really thought of it as a realistic, I didn't really think of it as a career, to be honest. Um, I always liked doing it, but I just, I didn't know of any artists. I didn't know any artists. Yeah, I just didn't know, like, that there was sort of people that would be represented by galleries and would mm. sell their work. It just wasn't something I really ever considered. So mm. I was very musical. So I, I learned piano and um, I was kind of thinking when I finished school that I'd, um, I'd go to the, or the, the dream would be to go to the Conservatorium of Music and do a diploma of education as well and become a music teacher. When I, then when I got back my year 12 marks, um, it sounds like I'm bragging a bit, but I got a much higher score than I'd anticipated. Right. And it's a really stupid mentality, but at the time I thought, I've got to do something that takes U advantage the yeah, of oh. this mark. You know? And so I thought psychology is an area that's, um, you know, there was, there's a lot of career prospects. It's kind of, I was interested in people and people told me that I was, uh, you know, a good listener and and good with people, but mm. I, yeah, so I thought I would go down that route. So did you enjoy that degree? Um, yes and no. I think I'd had a very romantic idea of what university would be like. I think I'd probably watched too many sort of American college movies <laughs> and I thought I would be sort of in this, you know, great environment with these sort of electrifying tutorials with all these fireworks of, you know, great ideas and all this amazing intellectual stimulation. And then I would always, I would also have these sort of great partying and stuff as well. And it didn't really, I don't know, it wasn't, it didn't match my expectation. But I think, um, yeah, you realise there was, particularly in the early years of psychology, you're, you're in huge lectures with 360 people. Mm. There was a real move to do things, a lot of things online, a lot of assessment online. So it didn't perhaps have that personal sort of aspect to it in the early years that I'd sort of was yeah. hoping it might. I was very fortunate. The university that I went to in third year, they offered a placement. So I, I worked at a, a camp for with kids that had 
sort of behavioural issues. And I also then worked at the Royal Adelaide Hospital with a psychologist in the Cancer Centre. And it was kind of a really significant moment for me because I started to see what it really was like working in a clinical environment. And it was a pretty intense environment, as I'm sure you can imagine. And it was a lot of people, you know, who, who are obviously dealing with those uh, very intense emotions that come with receiving a cancer diagnosis um, mm. and managing that alongside the sort of physical side of what's happening to them as well. It was a really incredible experience for me, um, but I think I kind of realised at that point of time that I didn't want to be a psychologist. Yeah. And um, so I felt kind of bad because it was such a great placement and she was such an amazing woman who was, my, was supervising me. And it was also useful to understand, I guess at that age sometimes you feel immortal and you don't necessarily contemplate uh, death that much, but I guess it was good. Uh, well, good's probably the wrong word, but it was an important thing to to learn at that age. I was only twenty at the time. It was, yeah, it was kind of a life changing experience doing that. And was that when you decided that uh, you wanted to pursue art? How did you then change your um, direction? No, it was sort of a moment of realising I didn't want to do psychology, but I didn't realise that I wanted to do art. <laughs> and that sort of was this really slow, gradual process from then onwards. I'd kept up drawing just as a hobby, you know, while I was at university, and I did find it really helped me when I was struggling with the, the kind of statistics and that stuff that I just found so arduous. Mm that drawing on the side just kind of lifted my spirits a little bit. And so I'd, yeah, I'd shown them to a friend and on my 21st birthday, shortly after, she took me out for breakfast and then she said, for your, for your birthday, I want to take you to an art store and um, I want to buy $100 worth of stuff for you because I think you should do this. So my, my friend, great friend Michelle... Um, she did that for me at a time where I just didn't, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was yeah. just completely confused. Do you remember what you bought with it? Oh, I think I had no idea really what I was buying because I wasn't, <laughs> all I had done was drawing at that point yeah. really. So, um, I think I just bought some nice papers. I bought some acrylic paints, um, brushes. So you hadn't, you hadn't painted before that? A little bit in school, but not much. Oh, Most, okay. Mostly drawing. When was it that you decided that you were going to take it further? I, it was probably when I moved to Sydney a few years later. Living in Adelaide, you know, I, I could see a lot of my peers starting to really find their feet, mm. you know, in their careers and their personal lives. And I, and I was just really struggling to, um, to work out what I wanted to do. And I just, I just felt like I needed... I needed something, you know, I needed to be away from, from that. I was just working full-time office job, nine to five, and I, was, I just Googled, uh, you know, life drawing classes. I was looking for something to do in the evenings. And I found this little art school. Uh, it was really just a, a stu this man's studio um, where he lived mm. as well in King's Cross. And he was an artist called Tony Johansson. And interestingly... 
he mentioned something about Julian Ashton Art School. And I'd heard of Julian Ashton's and I'd, I'd always just assumed it was really hard to get into and I wouldn't be able to go. He said, oh, no, just like it's, you can just go in and do whatever class, you know, in the evenings like, like here. Yeah, yeah. And so he sort of inadvertently sent me <laughs> away <laughs> without probably intending to because <laughs> I, I looked online um, and enrolled in just one night a week at Julian Ashton's. So how, what was that experience like first going to Julian Ashton? Oh, it was, it was really great. I think um, I went, I think it was a Monday night and I did Rod Wong's class. And I remember walking in and you go up the sort of two flights of stairs and I said, oh, you know, is this draw, Drawing 101 or whatever the class was called? Mm. And he said, oh, no, um, let's downstairs. And so I walked out of the room and then started walking back downstairs and then he came out after and, and said, oh, no, I was just kidding. Because, I mean, downstairs there's nothing. There's like an office building or something. Yeah. And, um, and so I came back in and all the students were laughing. But it was interesting. I mean, Rod's, he's a very tonal painter himself. And I think he was able to describe things in a way that, that I understood in terms of breaking it down into tonal shapes. Mm. And he just, all he had to do was show me a few images of what he meant of the kind of progress shots of a, of a piece coming to life and just showing me these types of shapes to, to be looking for sort of just immediately clicked. Yeah. And, you know, all of that kind of... Because I'd been drawing for such a long time without really having a lot of training, mm. um, it sort of came together quite quickly because I kind of knew what I wanted to try and achieve but I couldn't yeah to that point so was that that must have been exciting it was and it was a kind of a a weird time because I was working in an office had my sort of day job and I felt like I had this sort of thing that started to sort of simmer away and it became I guess it's how people perhaps describe an addiction I started doing two nights a week and then I started doing three nights a week and I just couldn't get enough of it. Had you started painting at that point as well? Did you start a I, painting class? Yeah, I started doing some painting with Rod as well. Mm. And uh, I was there for about a year um, on and off doing one or two or three classes a week. Yeah, and I think at a certain point I was realising, you know, I've got to do something. I've, I've got to stop working the sort of daily grind and just... I just couldn't get enough. I wanted to invest more time into it. So I made the bold move to quit my job and I managed to find part-time work and be at Ashton's full-time. And I guess the balance of my life started to shift at that point. And I think because I hadn't known any artists, I wasn't part of any art. The Adelaide is a very, has a great art scene, but I just wasn't part of it because it's not, it's not where I grew up and it's not, when I went to uni, I didn't meet those people. So I... I was totally unaware of that. Mm. And so it was, it was great to sort of enter this world and, and feel all this kind of support. And still to this day, you know, everyone from Julian Ashton's is really supportive of one another and go to each other's openings. And this is great sort of collective energy there. I, I've steadily painted and, and worked, you know, hard to try and experiment with colour and light and and just try and, 
utilise what I learned at Julian Ashton's? Yeah, I think one of those, one of the paintings that really shows uh, the use, the great use of light and colour in your paintings is um, your painting Transcendence, which won the Clifton Sydney Art Prize last year. And actually, I found that painting really interesting because it's about something that I ask a lot of my guests about, uh, which is about that sort of trance-like state when you're being creative. Mm. I guess it's something that I find fascinating when you do have this almost out-of-body experience creating art. And I'm not a, you know, I'm not a spiritual, overly spiritual person, but I'm really fascinated by how that happens. And yeah, I guess with that particular piece, I was just trying to create a feeling that was otherworldly and just kind of reflected how I feel when I get into that zone where I'm totally detached and yeah. I wanted this kind of me to be kind of floating in this space that was kind of detached from reality because that's how yeah. I feel. I think it's incredible the way you got that expression. It's a self-portrait and it's amazing how you got that expression because you're sort of staring at the middle distance, that trance-like staring. You're mm. not, it, it really is clear that you're not focusing on something. Mm. So do you have any tips for painting eyes? Um, oh, painting eyes, I find it's the, the biggest, I mean, I still struggle with it, but the biggest advice that, I, that I've been given is to just not overcomplicate things and, and sometimes you know, just simplifying that shape of the eye socket and then trying to keep that really basic kind of triangular shape and then slowly reveal little details in it is much more effective than launching straight into the detail right away. And I think because the eyes are such an integral part of a portrait, we all have a f tendency to want to do it right away. But I think it's about trying to unsee before you can see that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Actually, another portrait that I really liked as well was your portrait of Paul Capsis, which was called Paul Capsis 2, which was included in your solo show that just was last month, actually, mm. in Melbourne at Cambridge Studio Gallery. Um, and, of course, Paul is a famous Australian singer and, and actor. Uh, how, did you, how did you come... Did you actually meet him? Yes, yeah, he... Um, I'm, to put it in a bit of context, I'm working on a body of work um, that are portraits of Australian musical theatre performers. And so I've done a few and I'd sort of, I'd, I'd seen Paul, uh, Paul perform and I thought he would be a great person to be a part of this series that I'm working on. Mm. And um, I actually saw him perform with Conchita Wurst. Yeah. It was just, you know, it was, it was a really phenomenal performance. Um, and he was just a really great guy. He's had, so many people have done his portrait before and he's just, he's got such an amazing face. It's, um, well, your, that portrait you did of him is amazing. I mean, it oh, looks like you. he's right there in front of you. And also I noticed um, on Facebook, you, um, you put some progress shots actually of, was it a charcoal? Yeah. Your charcoal, which yep. that's the other thing, that charcoal drawing you did of Paul Capsis is also incredible. And uh, yeah, so you put... It was really interesting um, uh, selection of photographs because it was from the very first initial lines that you put, which is so structural, like just very basic shape. Yeah. Um, is that how you would start a charcoal drawing? Yeah, I usually just kind of break it into pieces. Like I'll get a big chunk of willow charcoal and I'll just use this, the edge side of it and sort of um, 
yeah, block it in very loosely and, uh, and try and keep it very angular. And fortunately, Paul has a very angular face, which I think it makes him a great subject because yeah. it sometimes makes it easier for those initial block-ins when, when someone's got kind of softer features, it can be a little bit harder to, to get that likeness. You also uh, painted Thomas Keneally. Yeah, well, the sitting was actually back in 2015. Okay. Um, and, well, I had one then and one in 2016. And he, um, well, he was just such a, a beautiful person. You know, he's, um, he's just uh, so compassionate and funny and, you know, he's 80 years old and has just so much energy and a huge just zest for life that mm. was infectious and inspirational. And I mm. was pretty scared meeting him because his intellect is astounding. Um, and the more I sort of read about him before I met him, <laughs> the more I started to freak myself out about saying something stupid that, um, <laughs> but he, um, yeah. he was well, really... Well, he's very, a very generous person as well. Yeah, and yeah. He's, he said, um, to put me at ease, he said, oh, I said something like, you've had your portrait done a few times, haven't you? And he said, yeah, I think artists are just fascinated by my face and they think if I can paint that, I can paint anything. <laughs> which um, which put me at ease. I'm not an overly sort of I don't have an overly academic approach because even though I did go to have that sort of classical training at Julian Ashton's, some of the um, approaches when it came to mixing color, um, I just I, I sort of struggled with, and so I I don't know I'm very instinctive with a lot of that and. Mm. While my work is kind of, you know, there is a lot of detail, I'm a pretty messy kind of unstructured palette and approach sometimes. So I think people are a bit yeah. shocked sometimes when they've seen how, um, how disorganised, you know, <laughs> my studio and palette looks. <laughs> um, so you but, don't set it out. So you wouldn't set out all your flesh tones at the beginning of no, the, in the morning and have no. it all sort of... In a row. No, my palette is just a complete dog's breakfast. But then you get like a lot of little subtle colours that you wouldn't normally mm. find. So, mm. do um, you find that you use the same colours each time? Yeah, but it's amazing what you can do with mm. you know only about six colours, and you can just it's like unlimited the possibilities. Yeah. So, so would yeah. you use like a warm and a cool red? And yeah, because of... I've got these kind of dual colour schemes going on in a lot of my paintings. I usually have sort of one palette with the warms and one with the cools. Oh, like um, separate palettes? Sometimes, yeah, oh, depending okay. on what stage of the painting. And then other times I'll blend them together and I'll get this sort of overlap where it all becomes, it all sort of messes oh. together and I kind of get all this fusion between them that right. ends well, up on the painting. That's, that's interesting what you say about the warm and the cool in your paintings because it's a very um, distinctive thing in your work because... Often on the portraits, you've got a, a warm light and then usually a reflected light on the other side. So um, a lot of blues and greens on the reflected light. Mm. Um, just talking about lighting, do you spend a lot of time with that, getting that right? Yeah, I think for me it's one of the most important uh, aspects of the, the paint, of, of setting it up because I guess my goal is trying to evoke an emotion or a feeling in a portrait that is something that I see in that subject and colour is a sort of way that I can I feel I can do that more so than adding in sort of props or something to signify what that person is I feel colour can sort of for me evoke that feeling 
And also another thing I want to ask you was, do you find, because I presume these paintings must take quite a while, you must put a lot of hours into each one, mm. um, how do you uh, come to it with fresh eyes? Like do you find that ever you've sort of worked so long that you, you can't see it objectively anymore? Yeah, that's, that's something I struggle with and I think to help that I work on multiple paintings at the same time. Oh. I'll, and then, but sometimes I've gone too far and I end up with like 12 paintings all <laughs> unfinished and I'm all working on it at the same time. I'm like this mad scientist like with all these palettes mixed up and I'm sort of frantically adding bits to different ones and I sort of lose focus. So I'm still trying to get that balance just right. So maybe having... 12 is a lot. <laughs> maybe having two or three at the same time is a, a safer approach. One of the things I'm also interested in with portraiture is um, I've often read about um, edges in, in, you know, the face or whatever, mm. hard edges, soft edges and lost edges and all that sort of thing. Do you ever think about that consciously or is that... Uh, you know, just something that's instinctive when you paint? Um, that's a good question. A bit, of, a bit of both. I think you can overthink these things. But I, um, it's interesting, I've re just recently worked this sort of body of work I've just finished. I just, I'd sort of done this portrait that was, it was all wet. I'd been, the paint was all wet and I just was really, it was very detailed and I was just quite unhappy with I don't know, it just looked lifeless. Yeah. And I just had a big brush that was, you know, one of these big, thick ones. And I thought, I've got nothing to lose. I don't like this painting. <laughs> and I just sort of slow, softly went over it with this big brush. Yeah. And it totally transformed. It transformed it and I was so much happy with it and became yeah. very soft and sort of a bit more ethereal. Yeah. And then I waited for that to dry and I went over and sort of tweaked it again. But I think sometimes by that frustrate, it's born out of frustration sometimes. Those decisions about lost and found edges and kind of blurring parts or kind of distorting sections. Mm. I guess that's what makes each painting is a bit of a journey because you can have this sort of frustration and it's not working and then that, correct, that makes you make a decision that then makes it work and gives it something a bit more unique that it didn't have yeah. if it was just going well the whole time. I think, yeah. Yeah. Do you ever, do you find it's usually a struggle at some point? Yeah, usually, unless you're doing something very quickly, yeah. but when you've got the time to overthink it, I, I usually do make a decision that I regret and think I've got to change this, or, you know, and then, um, but it's interesting, you know, some, it, there's that thing that you see as the artist that then other people have a completely different reaction to. Yeah. It always fascinates me because sometimes I've thought, oh, I'm so unhappy with this. It's not, you know, it's, I don't think I should be exhibiting it. And then people, it's like the one piece that everyone <laughs> <laughs> comments on that they like. And Isn't then there's something that I thought I was really happy with and it's sort of like no one ever discusses it, which means that it's probably just <laughs> yeah, a, a bit forgettable. So <laughs> it's strange, you know, that, but it's... Um, everyone's eye is so different, I guess. Yeah. But, um, and sometimes you're too close to them that you can't really, you can't really see. And so yeah. that's why it's good to exhibit your work because you get a sense of what other people see. Mm. And do you um, find it stressful when you're showing the, the person their portrait for the first time? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I found it always seems to be the people around them that have the, the more positive reaction <laughs> rather than the person themselves. <laughs> Um, I think that's right. Yeah. Mostly, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's really hard. When I see, or sometimes I watch that Ando show, you know, yeah. and I think, oh, no, we're now going to have to watch the person yeah. see it. <laughs> I don't yeah. want to watch that part because I, I think it's like a very personal thing for that person to see their own portrait. Yeah. yeah it's and a, you don't know what they're going to say. It's an awkward moment, and um, particularly <laughs> if there's cameras rolling. <laughs> But um, I think it's a good idea. Yeah. You know what I've done a couple of times is sent a, I've texted a photo of it so I yeah. don't have to see their face when they see it. Yeah, well, I think it's, um, yeah, it is. But then you, I've, been, I've done that and sort of then I'm waiting for them to respond. But, you know, if I haven't responded within a day, I'm like, oh, God, they hate it. But it's sort of a fun, it's a tricky thing because you want to show them, I've sort of thought, I I want to show them at a certain stage what it's looking like, but then if it's too soon, then they're going to think, what the hell is Yeah, exactly. It? And if it's too late, then you can't really change anything if they want you to change anything. So, yeah. but I found... Would you do that? Like, would you, towards the end, say, can you have a look at it, and if you want me to change something, I'll change it? Yeah. Right, that's I've a, commis- that. a commission portrait, yeah, would I've yeah. done. Yeah, I've done that before, and it didn't go so well. <laughs> but, um, but I found with doing actors again... They're used to being looked at and having their photograph taken, or just. Um, well, they're also artists as well. Yeah, so. and so I found that they they're great subjects, particularly theatre actors, because they've got such interesting faces and they're totally comfortable. And mm. I've found um, them very, you know, positive and encouraging of, with them so far. So, yeah. and it, because it's it's not a commission. It's um, it takes some of the pressure off. So yeah, yeah definitely. And also, you, is the expression that you're trying to get in those portraits trying to get to their their natural self rather than their theatrical self? I presume. Yeah, there's a bit of both, and trying to sort of, um, and I guess it depends on how your sitting goes with the person. If you feel like you see something that's truthful, and they might reveal something about their personal life or, or something that um, that you see that you think you want to draw out. But then it's this part of me is wants to sort of capture their stage persona too. So it's sort of, yeah. it's, it's an endlessly fascinating process because I'm kind of thinking about what you see on stage and the individual and trying to kind of create something that's maybe a bit of both. And you've also um, started doing a lot more landscape painting lately, yeah. which I love. Oh, thank you. Um, because you also have that beautiful use of light in those paintings, a, a very sort of moody atmosphere. What started making you go in that direction? Uh, it was funny because Julian Ashton's have some landscape classes and I just found any time I tried, I tried it, it just didn't work for me. I just sort of lost interest and... I'd sort of try doing these beach scenes and, you know, capture that sort of beauty of Sydney and it didn't, I don't know, it just didn't feel, just didn't feel it. Mm. But it was, um, I think it was travelling to New Zealand and just I had this sort of strong reaction to the landscape there and the, the drama of, oh, yeah. I don't know, I've always been attracted to sort of darker imagery mm. and um, there's something about, 
I don't know whether it's when you're traveling and you have fresh eyes, but I just started to see something that I hadn't really seen before when, um, when drawing inspiration from a landscape. Now, there's an exciting show coming up at Flinders Lane Gallery. Yes. Uh, and actually, when this podcast goes online, it will have just have opened a couple of days before, so this is good timing. Mm. Uh, it's a show called Exploration 17, and the gallery invites every year a select few unsigned artists to exhibit at their gallery, and you're one of them, so yes. that must be pretty exciting. Yeah, it's it's a really um, a great opportunity for people that are the the stage where I'm at um, to be able to exhibit it somewhere like oh, Flinders Lane. So, yeah. yeah. And um, I think I saw um, included in those works was it were uh, works where you've got um, like your head's covered. Is it a self-portrait with your head covered in like a fabric or something yeah. like that? I did use myself as a model, but it's not really a self, I wouldn't consider it a self-portrait per se, but I just used myself as out of convenience. Right. Um, and yeah, those pieces I'm sort of working on, I've, I've done a few in a similar thread and they're sort of, in that particular piece, the person's holding a selfie stick. And I guess I'm trying to sort of comment on that sort of obsession with self and looking at the ways that social media has kind of warped our perceptions of self and this sort of, although people seem to be sharing a lot of information, it's almost... Um, like there's a bit of a mask that people wear that's not reflecting their true identity. They're kind of with filters and all these other things you can do to kind of warp your image now. This very carefully curated version of self. And so I guess using that mask as sort of a a metaphor for that, and I was inspired by this um, Magritte paintings um, with the sort of masked um, figures. So I'm working on a series... uh, that are exploring that theme and, and you know, I, while I love technology and I, I like social media, there's all these positives. I am a bit of a, I am always drawn to darker things. So I am kind of ex- interested in, in exploring those darker aspects to it. And do you have any advice for someone who's interested, say, in pursuing an art career, but they might be just in some other work at the moment and they want to change tech and, and sort of become an artist? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I guess if people are in a situation where they're in a, a job and they're sort of, it's not satisfying to them, you know, if you, if you can, like, just invest that little bit of time to explore it and to see where it leads, but I understand it's not possible for everyone, so... Yeah, it's, you know, sort it's, of making, it's, it's sort of making it a bit of a priority as well Yeah, your time, I think. Yeah, and it is, you know, it is a risk to take by, by pursuing art. So I'm constantly grateful to people who've supported me. And I think, um, you know, while I work hard as an individual to create the pieces and I, you know, in the opportunities, embracing opportunities, I'm just, I couldn't do any of that without support from people around me. So I've had, um, you know, my parents, for example, I don't think... Uh, they really had a reference point for what it meant to be an artist. So there's probably an initial kind of concern from them about what it all meant. But they've been so supportive and positive the further I've gone with this. Mm. So that's been great. And I've, had, I've got an amazing partner who's very optimistic and enthusiastic about me doing this. 
which is, is also really great and I think probably balances my negativity a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a huge thing to have yeah. your partner supporting you. Yeah, which really makes a big difference. And I think um, also having honest feedback because there's not a lot of people that will mm. sort of really be honest with you about yeah. your work. So yeah. I really value that. And now the studio that I'm in, you know, I'm just really fortunate to be working alongside such an incredible artist. So I've got um, right next to me Nick Stathopoulos, who you've interviewed. Mm. Um, I've got Lucy West-Subi, who's a friend of mine from Julian Ashton's. Then Marie Mansfield, who's an incredible artist as well. And Mertem Gokalp uh, is there too. And um, Catherine Longhurst set that studio up and it's just, um, yeah, very... Uh, very appreciative of the opportunity to, to work alongside those artists and it's been a really it's helped me kind of like raise the bar I guess a little bit. Thanks so much for having me at your home I've it's been so great catching up and talking about your work and good luck with um, the opening of the show next week. Thanks so much Maria it's been great. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Michael. Go to talkingwithpainters.com for links to things and people we talked about in the show, including a link to Michael's website. I'll also be posting a YouTube video on the Talking With Painters YouTube channel in a couple of days uh, where Michael shows me some of his work. So all you need to do is go to YouTube and search Talking With Painters and you'll see that as well as lots of other videos I've taken of previous guests. Don't forget you can follow Talking With Painters on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or just by going to your podcast app on your phone or other device and search Talking With Painters. I'm also really excited to be going to Melbourne next week to meet with some brilliant painters so I hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking With Painters. To find a passion, something that you really love to do, and then to have the time to be able to explore it and do it is a really, really special thing. And not many people in the world get to experience that. So I'm very grateful when I, when I do get a chance to create. Um, and I think it's, it might sound a bit corny, but it's just, yeah, it's one of those great things. <laughs>